0: Welcome to the Gateway podcast. For more information on Gateway, it's gatewaychurch.org.nz Last Sunday night, I started just um, what I think will be a really brief series on the subject of amazing grace. And uh I spent all of last Sunday night on one question and emphasizing one point and uh, the question was what is grace it's a, it's a word if you've been around in christian circles any length of time you're probably very familiar with you've read it in the new testament it appears 130 odd times in the new testament paul the apostle of grace uses the word 99 times in his uh, in his correspondence and so if you've read the new testament you're very familiar with the word um, if you're raised in a family, a Christian family, then of course you know you come mealtime and somebody says it's your turn to say grace, and and the word grace in that context becomes synonymous with the giving of thanks, and, and uh, I mean that's appropriate. The word charis, which is the Greek word for grace, is actually translated thanks on some occasions, but it, it, it's a word. If I I think if I pushed you, you would probably struggle to actually describe it. Um, Well, it's, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's grace. I mean, everyone knows grace. And uh, I think if I pushed you to describe it, most of you, at least if you've been around in Christian circles anyway, you would come up with the definition of the unmerited favor of God. It's God being good to us when we don't deserve it. The question I asked last Sunday night, and just want to reiterate again this evening, is if that's the definition of grace, what's the definition of mercy? Because it strikes me at least that mercy is getting what you don't deserve. And and is that, is that the same as saying grace and mercy are exactly the same things? And I don't think that's the case. I suggested to you that we could actually come up with a better definition of grace than the unmerited favor of God, that that probably is a better definition of mercy than it is of grace. And uh, I actually asked the question last Sunday night, how many people had read Philip Yancey's book, What What's So Amazing About Grace? I was actually surprised by how few people put their hands up because I thought it was a very popular Christian book. Um, I loved the book, but... Uh, In my humble opinion, I I think it's probably termed or or, or it would be better termed entitled What's So Amazing About Mercy? Because if you actually read that book, it's all about God's incredible forgiveness toward us and our need to be merciful and forgiving of others. And it's more about mercy than it is about grace. I asked some questions. If grace is unmerited favor, then, then what do scriptures like this mean? James 4 6, he gives more grace, therefore he says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, put on humility, for God resists the proud ones, but he gives grace to the humble. It seems very clear that there is something about humility that merits grace. God resists proud, but he gives it to the humble. That that doesn't, at least in my opinion, stack up with unmerited favor. Unmerited favor is given in spite of anything. But this clearly says that grace merits favor. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, it speaks about falling from grace. In Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15, it talks about falling short of grace. Again, how is it possible to fall from something or fall short of something that's given without merit and without strings attached? That, that kind of terminology doesn't make sense. When you think about the passages that are used to describe Jesus, it says that he's full of grace and truth. Again, I ask the question, if grace is unmerited favor, how does it resonate with you to say Jesus was full of the unmerited favor of God? Now, if I was to say that of me or of you, that would resonate, because you and I need mercy, and we need the unmerited favor of God. But Jesus was sinless. So how does it resonate with you to say he was full of the unmerited favor of God? I spent the whole evening honing in on those thoughts and suggesting that grace actually isn't what a lot of us have been told, a la the unmerited favor of God. And I gave a couple of definitions that I think are better suited of grace. James Ryle says of grace, it's the empowering presence of God that enables us to be what God's called us to be and to do what God's called us to do. The empowering presence of God, not the unmerited favor of God, but the empowering presence of God in our lives that enables us to be what we're supposed to be and do what we're supposed to do. Bill Gothard says that grace is the desire and the power that God gives to do as well. Both those two definitions talk about grace being a present power within us as opposed to it being unmerited favor being bestowed on us. Don't, don't make the mistake of thinking we don't need unmerited favor, we do. But that's primarily, at least for me, comes under the definition of mercy. We need the mercy of God and we also need the grace of God and the grace of God is something different. What we did is we spent the remainder of the evening going through passages in the New Testament where the word grace is used and substituting in that definition. And what we find is that it actually fits better and makes the passages clearer and it leaves us without the confusing anomalies that we find if we call grace the unmerited favor of God. Let me remind you of a couple of passages, a couple of really well-known passages Two Corinthians chapter twelve, verse eight and nine, for this thing I besought the Lord, says paul three times he had he had something going on in his life that he called a thorn in the flesh, and he besought the Lord three times that it might depart from him he said And he said to me, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power, for my power, is made perfect in weakness. Now what I'd like to suggest to you is if you insert the unmerited favor of God in there, I've got this problem, Lord, and I need you to solve it. And he says, listen, Paul, my unmerited favor is is enough for you. If I was Paul, I might feel somewhat comforted. But I wouldn't feel like, man, that is a real answer to my need. I'm looking for something to help me get through this situation. Not just God saying, listen, Paul, it's okay, I'm for you, and my unmerited favor will cover you. But if you take that definition that I gave to you, the empowering presence of God that enables you to be what you're supposed to be and do what you're supposed to do and insert it into that situation, then Paul is effectively saying, I'm facing this incredible problem, Lord. Would you take it away? And the Lord says, no, Paul, I won't take it away. But what I will do is empower power you by my presence in the midst of this problem and you're going to get through it. Well, to me that gives dynamic hope and and a sense that I'm getting help through this problem as opposed to I'm simply being comforted as while I go through it. Another another passage in Romans chapter 5 verse 20:21 20, says the law entered so that offense might abound, but where sin abounded grace did much more abound. So that as sin has reigned to death, Even so, grace might reign through, the righteous, through righteousness to eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, in this passage, if we think of grace as being unmerited favor, then, then, then grace is reduced in this passage to being a cleanup agent. Sin is incredibly powerful and we can't stop it, but at least with God, he'll forgive, it, forgive us and he'll clean us up after the fact. Now the reality is, of course, he does do that, but if we think of grace instead of unmerited favor as being the empowering presence of God, then we are talking here about two powers. And one power is superior to the other power, and it overcomes it and puts it under. And the superior power is not sin, the superior power is grace. It's the power of God. And so this, power is, this, this passage is not about sin is powerful, but God will clean up the mess that you make. It's sin is powerful, but God is releasing in you his presence to be even greater. And when we sin, we aren't submitting to a power much greater than us. What we're doing is acquiescing to an inferior power. And what Paul is saying, that's a travesty. That's an insult to the presence of God in you. You've got a power in you that's superior to those things that seem to be nailing you against the wall and holding you down. And he does more than give mercy to you when you do fall. He'll do that. But more than that, he'll release his empowering presence in you to see that thing broken, and grace can reign in righteousness. So when you go through the New Testament and substitute the unmerited favor of God, take that out of the equation and put in the empowering presence of God, suddenly it's dynamically different. And, and, um, and it makes sense of the passages. What I want to do this evening is just follow through a little bit and talk about positioning yourself for grace. All right, That's the title of my message, Positioning Yourself to Receive Grace. And the question I want to ask is, how do you receive grace? If we need grace... Because it's by grace, through faith, that you're saved. all right. The empowering presence of God in you, acting through faith, is what brings salvation. Past, present, future. How do we receive it? Well, I've already alluded to the fact, and I want to just draw your attention to these two passages again. James chapter 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Peter says, put on humility for God resists proud ones, but he gives grace to the humble. It seems to me that being clothed with humility is a prerequisite for entering into grace. If grace is the empowering presence of God, then to walk in that presence requires that we be aligned with it in humility. Many of us are aware of an Old Testament passage in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which says, He's shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, justice to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. If we're going to walk with God, it requires humility. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without humility, it's impossible to walk with God. If we're going to walk with God in His empowering presence, then we have to align ourselves with that presence By walking in humility. It's very obvious as you look at the scripture that God prizes humility. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2, I will pay attention, God says, to those who are humble and sorry for their sins and who tremble at my work. Humility draws the sovereign gaze of God in our direction. Now, perhaps we should do with humility what we did last week with grace, and that is define it. Because I suspect that we have as many misconceptions about humility as we do about grace. So the Webster's Dictionary gives us four definitions of the word humble. The first is poor, wretched, lowly, plain, and pitiable. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? As in, he grew up in humble surroundings. The opposite, Webster says, is proud, which is to be superior, to be distinguished, having quality, as in he does very proud work. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was tempted to choose between one of those two attitudes, I'd probably fall on the side of being proud, because humility in that sense doesn't seem particularly attractive. A second definition is servile, abject, cringing, and pathetic. We're going south, real fast, as in... What humble creatures these peasants are. The opposite is proud, and it means self-sufficient, independent, as in he was too proud to ask for help. A third definition, subdued, humiliated, disgraced, ashamed. Anybody for grace? As in the champion was humbled by his opponent. The opposite, proud in this context, means exalted, delighted, extremely pleased, As in, I'm so proud of you. Again, I would suggest as we look at these definitions, unless you've been severely bent out of shape by life and have somewhat of a masochistic sort of approach to life, we would tend to fall on the side of pride as far as these definitions are concerned. Thankfully, there's one more. And it's unassuming, unpretentious, not self-asserting, deferential. As in, for somebody so famous, he's surprisingly humble. The opposite, proud in this context, means arrogant, self-asserted, conceited. And it's here for the first time that my bias at least would shift toward humility. And I'd say, I want to choose that over that. Okay? The scriptural definition of humility has little to do with the first three, thank goodness. Webster's number four, unassuming, unpretentious, not self-asserting, deferential, is actually quite close to the Greek word that we uh, have translated humility. It, it's the word tapinos, and it literally means low-lying. And it was used to describe the river of a level during drought times. Keeping a low profile might be a modern-day equivalent. We say of a person, oh, he's keeping a low profile. He's just keeping out of sight. It's a person who does not, does not need to show oneself above, above others. You know, the best and simplest description of humility, and there are lots of them, but the one that I like most, at least anyway, I found in a book by um, Mike Bickle, and he simply defined humility as agreeing with God's assessment of us. Humility is simply agreeing with God's assessment of us. If God says, you're the scum of the earth, humility says, I'm the scum of the earth. No more, no less. Pride, on the other hand, retorts, hey, I'm not that bad, come on. If God says, you are the king of the nations, humility says, I am the king of the nations, long live the king pride on the other hand says oh shucks you know far far be it from me i am i mean i am your humble servant pride stands in an arrogant audacious resistance of what god says about us and our situation humility bows before what god says and says yes lord whatever you say Humility is finding out what God says about us and agreeing with it. That's humility, and it releases the grace of God to function and flow in our lives. The The classic, the most wonderful example of humility in the Scriptures is, is no less than Jesus. We only have one self-description of, of Jesus in the whole of the New Testament. Only once is he recorded as speaking about his own inner life. And this is what he said of it. I am gentle and humble of spirit. It's the Greek word tapinos. I am low lying. I am unassuming. I'm not trying to climb the ladder of status or of position. Paul took up this whole issue of Jesus' humility and he described it this way. Jesus was truly God. Christ was truly God, but he did not try and remain equal with God. Instead, he gave up everything and became a slave when he became like one of us. Christ was humble. He obeyed God and he even died on a cross. He did not grasp that which was truly his, but he let it go and he lived a life of phenomenal humility. Now, John chapter 13 verses 1 through 4 pho- give us a photographic illustration of what Matthew and Paul were talking about. Let me read the passage to you. It's just before sorry it's John it's verses 1 to 4 of John 13. It, It's just before the crucifixion. It says it was before Passover, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to return to the Father. He had always loved his followers in this world, and he loved them to the very end. Even before the evening meal started, the devil had made Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, decide to portray Jesus. Jesus knew that he had come from God and would go back to God. He also knew that the Father had given him complete power. So during the meal Jesus got up, removed his outer garments and wrapped a towel around his waist and the script, the passage goes on to tell us that he washed his disciples feet. You're, you're aware that in that culture it was customary when you enter a house that there was a bowl of water at the door and the most menial servant in the house, the one who's lowest on the totem pole on the ha- in the house, it was his job to wash the guests feet. Well they'd gone into a room that was unoccupied, there wasn't any, anybody else there? So it had to fall to one of, the, one of their company to do this menial task. And as the disciples enter in, all of them, desperate in their attempts to prove to themselves and to others that they weren't menial, they turn away from doing the menial task. Something in their psyche says, if I do the lowest job, I am the lowest and I don't want to be the lowest. I may not be the top, but I don't want to be the lowest. So they all look away from the bowl and go in and everybody, everybody says, not me. It's not what I want to do. They are busy with their upward mobility in terms of their status in this fledgling organization. And no one will do the lowest job. On the contrary, Jesus, being secure as he was in, the, in, in, in his Father's love, being secure as the Son of God, he doesn't feel the need to strive. And so in this passage... Verse 4 comes after verse 3. Verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing who he was, knowing where he was going, took the towel, took the bowl, began to wash his disciples' feet. He knew who he was. You remember perhaps a couple of weeks ago, Ed Peorick talking about the central event. He'd had an encounter with the Father's love. He'd heard the father 's voice speak to him, affirm who he was, secure him in his love, and as a result of that security he 's free to do the menial tasks he doesn 't need to do something to prove who he is he knows who he is, and so he 's released to do whatever to jesus it doesn 't matter if he 's on the great white throne of judgment or washing his disciples feet neither of those two things are impressive in the sense of securing who he is as a person and so secure in his father's love he 's able to wash his disciples' feet. Knowing who he really was released him to be lowly. He had nothing to prove, nothing to fear, nothing to hide, nothing to lose. And that releases him in his humility to do the most menial task. I love what Stanley Jones, the old missionary to India, what he says about this passage. He says, conscious of being great with an ultimate greatness, he could afford to be humble. Real humility is not rooted in a sense of humiliation or wretchedness. It is rooted in a sense of being inwardly great. The little or insecure person dare not be humble as it would give away their littleness. They have to act a part, a part of being great in order to compensate for actually being small. The one who's truly great doesn't have to act a part. He has nothing to keep up. He is great and therefore he's released to do the lowly. It's an insightful comment worth thinking about. Let me give you an illustration. It comes from James Ryle. It's a good one as far as I'm concerned. If you can imagine this sequence, just imagine a pot plant. The pot actually speaks of the Father's love. and Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 talks about the need for us to be rooted and grounded in love. The soil is security. Out of that love and security, a plant called humility can grow on which... The Father can pour grace, but it's rooted in that love. Out of that love comes security. Out of security is released humility, and out of humility comes grace. Grace comes from humility. Humility comes from security. Security comes from the Father's love. If you can imagine that whole pattern being bent out of shape and reversed, what you have is the pot of rejection and abandonment. And so many people in our culture don't have any sense of being totally, freely, unreservedly loved. And as a result, the soil is insecurity. Out of insecurity, a plant of pride grows. Because pride is really the attempt to grasp by force something that God actually wants to give you as a result of his mercy and grace. And... and. Uh, Instead of the water of God's grace comes contention. Proverbs says, only with pride comes contention. And you look around any organization you care to look at, including, unfortunately, the church, and you'll see people who, instead of ministering out of acceptance and love, they are struggling and contending for acceptance and love. And in our insecurity, we guard our titles and our turf. And instead of seeing a release of grace, what we have is contention. And you see it again and again. Unfortunately, not just in secular organizations, but in Christian ones as well. Now, the Bible very clearly said God resists that. God resists the proud. And if we want to posture ourselves for grace, we need to be encountered by this whole concept of humility and, and, and what it requires to be humble. Humble flows out of a sense of security born of the Father's love and that releases grace to ensure that we can be all that he's made us to be and to do all that he's intended we should do. Jesus secure in the Father's love was the embodiment of humility. That's why the scripture says of him he was full of grace and he spoke gracious words. You know, somebody came up to me afterwards, after after I spoke last Sunday, and they said, Don, if that's the definition of grace, how do you define gracious? And it took me by surprise a little. I hadn't really thought about it, but I went home and began to think about it. And what they said of Jesus was, he speaks such gracious words. Now, it could be, of course, that he was speaking words of, unmerited favor and and was winning their hearts by that. But I suspect that the definition holds true. What he was speaking was words of power. And that's what they commented on again and again, wasn't it? We've never heard words like this. When he speaks, demons leave, people are healed. This man speaks like no other man has ever spoken. He speaks such gracious words. He spoke words that weren't just words, but that bore the empowering presence of God to do the things that God had intended be done. And and that came because he was full of humility. He was not resisted in any way, shape or form by God because his humility drew the empowering presence of God upon his life. For so many people lacking that foundation of being secure in the Father's love, life is about asserting ourselves in a struggle for acceptance. And instead of ministering out of acceptance, we minister for it. We're searching for for acceptance and love. And uh, as a result, our fists are clenched, clutching at everything we can that we think will secure us and give us substance. And all the while, we ensure that as our hands are filled with our own purposes and energies and plans, they can't be opened up to receive grace. God can't pour grace into hands that are already clutched. And so many of us are clutched in terms of Grasping for things that we think will secure us. We function out of our own resources and thereby we refuse His. We resist His grace instead of receiving it. It's humility that opens our heart and our hands. And He can only give resources of grace into hearts and hands that are open. For me, that opened up a whole new thought in terms of Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. I'm sure you're familiar that in Galatians, Paul is writing to combat the leaven of legalism. That started off, motivated by faith and love and empowered by grace, but this church began to degenerate into the keeping of rules. And it was about the outward observance of rules. And you know the tragedy is so much of Christendom today can be basically summed up by things that we don't do. If you ask people in the street, what are christians for mostly they'll say they're against this they're against that they don't do this and they don't do that and we've become by, we've become defined by the things that we've taken stands against and by by the things that we don't do and and much of the church is mired in legalism there are dress codes there are behavior codes there are all kinds of codes that we have to conform to that show somehow that we are part of the in group and that we are in relationship with the in-group, And Paul's writing about that kind of leaven to Galatia, and he says this, If you go down that road, he says you are cut off from Christ, you who would have righteousness by the law, you are turned away from grace. You have fallen out of grace when you do that. And it suddenly dawned on me that, that effectively when we choose the law over grace, then what we're saying is, I don't choose your assessment of my situation, God. I believe that I can do this in my own strength. Remember, humility is agreeing with God's assessment of us. And God's assessment is the human condition is so bent out of shape that in your own strength you cannot produce the things that are required to please God. But legalism says, well, let me have a go. Because I don't actually think I'm as bad as you think I am. Let me try, and I'll do it under my own steam and under my own strength. And as much as we seek to do it under our own steam and our own strength and our hands are clutched around our resources, then God says, I cannot give you mine, and you have fallen out of grace. But when we believe and agree with his assessment, we open our hearts and hands to grace. I can't do this, Lord. I can't, by the strength of my own will, by the power of my own um, decisions, walk this way. If you leave me, I will fall. But if your empowering presence will come, I believe it can happen. And we position ourselves for grace. That's humility. Humility is agreeing with his assessment of our situation, saying, I need it, Lord, because without you, I can't do it. It's not resorting to law-keeping and our own strength and our own righteousness. It's simply saying, God, if you don't come, then I will need your mercy because I am going to fall again and again and again. If I don't have your empowering presence, then sin's power will have to be answered by your mercy cleaning up the mess that I leave because I can't beat sin by myself. But if we say, God, would you give me grace? your empowering presence in me facing this situation, suddenly we open ourselves up to a power that is much greater than the thing that has held us so tightly for so long. Agreeing with his assessment of our situation opens heart and hand and puts us in a place of humility that allows grace to flow because we say, yes, Lord, I need it. Come in your power. Come in your grace. And he responds to humility. And there is a flow of grace that comes our way. So grace is the empowering presence of God. Not the unmerited favor of God, it's the empowering presence of God. When you're reading the New Testament this week and you come across the word grace, substitute it in, what you'll find is it fits and it resonates in ways that the unmerited favor of God does not always. When Paul says grace and mercy to you, it's not just good thoughts and and God will clean up your mess. It's the empowering presence of God is in you. Grace and mercy, because you will fall, we do. But there's mercy for you and grace to make a difference. That's amazing grace. To me that's amazing. And that's how I want to finish tonight. I've asked the musicians if they'll come back. And I want to sing John Newton's hymn. And I want you to sing it with a new understanding. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Not just, oh my goodness, it's enough for me in my mess, but amazing, empowering presence for me in my present that can take me where God intends me to go and that I can be what God intends me to be. Let's stand together, shall we? Thank you for listening. For more information, updates, or resources, head to gatewaychurch.org.nz.